The question we're thinking about tonight is, what happens? What happens when I die? And I'm probably going to answer this tonight not quite in the way that you would expect if you were guessing. We're going to be thinking about something called the intermediate state. The intermediate state. Now, my guess is that not many people have heard that phrase before, or you maybe haven't heard it talked about a lot in church. But here goes. The point is this, when we think of heaven as Christians, I think we like to think of the end. That place we'll get to at Christ's return, that place of judgment, where in Revelation it's described as the new heaven and the new earth, the place with no tears and no pain and no sorrow, a place of glory. But the issue is that that hasn't happened yet. That happens at the end after Jesus returns. So if I die tonight, how could I go there? That doesn't really make sense. We don't believe in some sort of cosmic time travel where I just am immediately there. No, we live in the here and now, and we look forward to that glorious day. We thought about it last week in the context of suffering that day when there will be no more suffering. Eden restored. But for those who have died trusting in Christ, and for those of us who will die trusting in Christ, where do we go in the in-between? And that place and that process is known by theologians. We'll not use a lot of theological jargon tonight, but it's known as the intermediate state. Now, let me be clear. I am not talking about purgatory, okay? Purgatory, as you probably know, is, is a Roman Catholic doctrine. It's somewhere you, you may go after you die if you weren't quite good enough for heaven. You can serve a penance there. People can pray for you there, so they say, and then you might be able to get into heaven. I don't think there's any biblical support for such a place. Um, the idea was brought up in the 12th century by scholars, by Catholic scholars. They were looking at a book called Second Maccabees, which is um, in the Catholic version of the Bible. We don't believe that book is inspired. But even if we did believe it was part of the Bible, I still don't think we could believe in purgatory because what those scholars did was they looked at verses that said you could pray to dead people and they then just built the idea kind of up on top of that. But Jesus doesn't talk about it, um, and he does talk about what happens when we die. So I don't think we can uh, support purgatory. But we do believe in something in the middle. And so if we want to think about that final state, and we're going to be doing that over the coming weeks as we look at heaven and hell and the world ending, well, if we want to know how we get there, we have to understand the process, and we have to understand the intermediate bit first. And my guess is that Christians today, we, we don't really know a lot about this or talk a lot, a lot about this. We talk in a loose way about when you die, you go to heaven if you're a Christian. You trust Jesus, you go to heaven, you go to be with him. But we might struggle to describe what actually happens. So that's what we're going to drill down into tonight. I hope you're ready. Thankfully, the Bible has lots to say about this, and that's what we're going to think about tonight. But I think at this stage, much like uh, this morning when we thought about looking at Daniel chapter 7, we should probably stop and pray and ask God for his help. So let's pray. Our Father, we are in awe of you. As we were singing, you are the holy God. There is no one like you. There is none beside you. And yet, Lord, we're here tonight because we want to praise you. We want you to open our eyes to things that we cannot see open our hearts and see something of your glory and your greatness. And so, even as we come to this topic, Lord, a topic which maybe has been neglected at times um, by us and by your church, 
We pray that you would come by your Holy Spirit as we turn to your word in a moment, that you would speak to us, that you would instruct us. But more than that, Lord, that you would encourage us and give us hope. Lord, knowing that precious in your sight is the death of those who serve you and those who love you. Lord, may tonight just be another building block in that confidence that we have. May it strengthen our love for you and our confidence in you for the future. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to turn to um, Luke's gospel. Hopefully the words will appear on the screen. Luke chapter uh, 16, and we're going to begin reading at verse uh, 19. Now, one of the reasons why I think we haven't thought much about this uh, topic in the church is because we've had a bit of issue with Bible translation. And now, we're not going to think loads about that tonight, but I am going to stop in the middle of this reading and just point out an area where different translations may say different things because it's kind of important for what we're thinking about tonight. Hopefully, that will become clear as we go. So, Luke chapter 16 and beginning at verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And that's where I want to stop for just a little second. Verse 23, in Hades. Now, if you're reading the authorized version or if it's just familiar in your mind, you might think that the word there should be hell. That is often how that word has been translated. But the problem is the Greek word for hell is Gehenna and the Greek word for Hades is Hades. And that word is Hades, okay? So there's a, there's a difference between hell and Hades. So I'm not gonna say anything more about that at the moment, but just it's important that that is actually Hades and not hell. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and sent Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even when someone rises from the dead. I'm reliably informed that a little over seven years ago, a man who some of you may know, uh, Stafford Carson, marched into Union College as the new principal, Union College just across the way. 
And on one particular occasion, he was taking a group of ministry students for a class, and he was talking about how you would preach difficult topics. And he said to them, what about the intermediate state? And he got a lot of blank looks back, and they said, what? And Stafford was a bit worried about that. He was a bit worried about the fact that ministers who would be going out to, to deal with people, to comfort people as they lose loved ones, didn't actually know anything about this. Now, why do I tell you that story? I maybe shouldn't have, but I tell you it because if this is new to you tonight, if this is different to maybe what you've heard before, you're not the only one. I confess it was new to me about a year and a half ago um, when I sat in a lecture on this. But I also want to encourage you because when I did that, um, at the end of the lecture, I thought, oh, that really makes a lot of sense. That's really good. That's really encouraging. I know a lot more about this now. Maybe I'm underestimating you, people of Ravenhill. Maybe this is all old hat to you. And if it is, well, be encouraged anyway. But if not, don't worry about it. You won't be the only one. As I say, I'm big enough to say I haven't, I've been to church all my life and this was new to me, but it isn't new theology. The church has taught this forever. Uh, and even documents like the Westminster Confession of Faith, those documents of our church, they reflect this theology as well. And we'll look at a few of those um, a little bit later on. But I think there are two issues why we don't tend to think about this in church, at least in this part of the world. One is because it sounds a bit like purgatory. If you talk about something that happens after death that isn't heaven or hell, it sounds like purgatory. So we're a little bit afraid of that. And the other reason is because of unfortunate um, Bible translation. Now, to be fair, I, I picked on the authorized version earlier when I was reading through that reading. I said, it, it translates it as hell, and, and that's wrong. And it is wrong in modern English. To be fair, in medieval English, the word hell didn't necessarily mean hell as we think of it. It just meant somewhere you go when you die. So to be fair to the translators of the King James Version, they probably did a good job in their day. But in modern English, um, it's a little bit unfortunate because it's a little bit misleading. Hades is not hell, at least as we think of hell. So we're gonna do this in three parts this evening because we're Presbyterians. First of all, we're gonna look at the Old Testament and what it has to say about where you go when you die. Um, and again, the, the translation issue is gonna come into that um, because I guess that is the part that will be new to most of us. It's only an understanding that what the Old Testament people believed that secondly, we can think about Jesus and what he did and how that changes things. And then finally, we can answer the question, where we go when we die. So I hope that makes sense. So what does the Old Testament have to say about death? I want to acknowledge at this point that some of the material um, is from that lecture that I mentioned given by Marty Cowan in Union College. The Old Testament clearly teaches about a final state in the same way that we think about it, a new heaven and a new earth, but also an intermediate state, something in between. So Isaiah 65, for example, says, see, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, neither will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. So the Old Testament people of God believed in a glorious future, a heaven in the way that we would, those words could be from Revelation, couldn't they? That, that, they're really mirrored at the end of Revelation. 
So the Old Testament people of God believed, they, they believed a savior was coming. So to stick with Isaiah, if you read chapters 52 and 53, they believed that there was going to be a servant come, he would suffer, he would take away their sins, and then they believed that there would be a new creation. Now that's probably pretty familiar to most of us. But the Old Testament also has a lot to say about what happens in between. Now I want to introduce you to a word that you might not have heard before. It's a Hebrew word, but don't worry, there's only one of them, okay? It's a Hebrew word and it is Sheol, Sheol. And Sheol is in the Old Testament where everybody goes when they die. It's the place of the dead. Um, Sheol is in Hebrew what Hades is in Greek. And we know that because we have the Old Testament in Greek as well. So Sheol and Hades, it's the same place. I'm gonna use the Old Testament word probably for most of this talk, um, Sheol, but Sheol and Hades are the same place. It's what we read about in Luke chapter 16. Now Sheol is found 66 times in the Old Testament, so we don't have a shortage of information about it. We're not gonna go through all 66, but let me just show you one verse for the moment to illustrate some of the problems that this little word gives us. So one of the places that this word crops up is in Psalm 16 and verse 10. It's a reasonably well-known verse. We'll start with the King James Version. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, that's the Sheol word, in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. I have to slow down when I say that to get all the wilt thou's and thine's in hell. That's how it's translated there. Now again, I'll be fair to the King James Version in the old meaning of the word hell, maybe. But I can tell you that if I'd written that in the Hebrew exam, if I'd been given that first to translate in college and I translated it as hell, I'd have got a big red X beside it. Um, Sheol is not hell. So King James says hell. We'll, we'll go on um, to the NIV 1984. That's the version of the Bible that you would normally have in front of you in your pew, um, but we've taken those away because of COVID so that lots of people aren't handling them. Because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. And I've got a big red X beside that as well, unfortunately. There's a perfectly good Hebrew word for hell, there's a perfectly good Hebrew word for the grave, and Sheol isn't it. So unfortunately, we're not really getting very far here. We'll go on to the ESV, because I know some of you love the ESV. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Well, that's quite a good translation, except it it's not a translation, it just writes out the word in Hebrew again. Now what I'm trying to illustrate to you here, I'm not gonna go through loads of different translations, but the point is, one of the reasons why we don't understand what happens when we die is because our Bible translations have let us down a wee bit. We, we don't understand this concept, and that's, that's shown by the ESV, by the fact that they've just said, we don't know how to translate this, so we're not gonna bother. Okay, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Probably the best attempt is, is the last one that I'll show you, which is the, the new version of the NIV. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. Now that still needs some explanation. What is the realm of the dead? Okay, we'll come to that. But Sheol is the place in the Old Testament that you go when you die, no matter who you are. I, I hope you see the issue here. There's lots of different translations in English, and I think that's why we're unclear about this. Uh, one theologian who lived about 100 years ago, uh, Herman Bavinck, puts it like this. Sheol is the one great grave 
that encompasses all the graves of the dead. It is the realm of the dead, the underworld, and accordingly often mistakenly translated in the King James Version by hell. Okay, so I've probably said it enough times by now, but you get the idea. This, Sheol is this place where you go and you die if you live in Old Testament times, um, and it's not hell, okay? It's not hell. So I think that last NIV translation is pretty good, that she Sheol is the realm of the dead. But let's get stuck in. What, what does Sheol, what, what does Hades look like? Well, in the Old Testament, Sheol is very often referred to as being under the earth, somewhere where you go down to when you die. Here's quite an extreme example from uh, number 16, when a number of people rise up in rebellion against Moses. They went down alive into the realm of the dead, that is Sheol. With everything they owned, the earth closed over them and they perished and were gone from the community. So Sheol is depicted as being this place and that is under the earth. Probably the best known sort of reference to this, I picked a bit of a strange one there, but from Psalm 139, you might know the verses, where can I go from your spirit and where can I go from your presence? If I, go, if I make my home in the heavens, you're there. If I lie down in Sheol, you're there too. So it's, it's seen as this place that is under the earth. I think that's metaphorical. I don't think it's literally beneath our feet, okay? But it's seen as somewhere that, that is in the lower regions of the earth in the Old Testament. So that's the first thing. That's why I think we think of hell as being, you know, down there sometimes. It's not really theologically accurate, but, but that's where we get it from, this idea in the Old Testament that Sheol is under the earth. And as I say, everyone goes there through death, all souls, whether good, whether righteous or evil, they go to this place called Sheol. So here's an example of an evil person. This is uh, the king of Babylon being prophesied against in Isaiah 14. The realm of the dead, Sheol, below is all astir to meet you at your coming. It rises the spirits of the departed to greet you. So Sheol is somewhere where, where evil people go, where people who don't um, love God or who oppose God go. But it's also a place where good people go. And that, that might surprise us that in the Old Testament, good people and evil people kind of go to the same place. In Genesis 37, when Jacob has just been told that Joseph, his son, has died, his favorite son has died, this is what he says, or this is what Genesis says. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son for many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. So he believes his son is in Sheol. Joseph in the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And Jacob anticipates he's going to go there too. I will go down to Sheol for my son. In other words, I wish I were dead. I wish I could be reunited with my son in Sheol. So all people, whether good or evil, in the Old Testament they go to Sheol. People who go to Sheol don't tend to come back. Now, there may be a few exceptions to this, and if you want to ask questions about that later, if you're really into this, you can do so. But generally, people who do go there do not go back. Um, for when a few years which have come, I shall go the way from which I shall not return. That's a mouthful. Job is saying, at one point, I will go there, I won't return from there. Um, and, and the Sheol language is used um, in the verses around that one which I've quoted. So Job expects, Job is righteous, he expects to go down to Sheol and not to come back. Um, Joshua, when he's about to die in Joshua chapter 23, he says, today I'm about to go the way of the whole earth. He believes that everybody goes to this place and there is no way 
um, back. Okay, I'm going to rattle through the rest of these because, um, you know, Sheol, it's a bit depressing, isn't it, in the Old Testament? But here we go. People are conscious while they are in Sheol. Okay, so here's, here's a quote from Ezekiel 32. The mighty chiefs shall speak of them with their helpers out of the midst of Sheol. So the souls which go to Sheol, they're conscious. There's, there's this idea that they can speak. And we saw that in, in the Luke passage that we read as well, didn't we, with, with Abraham and the rich man and Lazarus. There seems to be an ability to speak a consciousness. Um, so some people would teach that your soul goes to sleep until the resurrection. Um, even some Christian denominations would teach that, but it seems to be ruled out here. Um, you are conscious when you go to Sheol. And the final thing um, for now to say is that there are two different sections in Sheol, two different sections, the, the lowest part and the highest part. Um, the wicked will experience the fire of God's anger in the depths. Um, so here is um, from Deuteronomy 32, for a fire is kindled by my anger and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth at its increase and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. So there's in, in the lowest part of Sheol, there is God's wrath and there is God's anger. But there's hope in the Old Testament. There's hope for God's people who go there um, of a higher section, if you like. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol for he will receive me. So there's hope too for God's people that even though they're going to go to Sheol, they're going to be received um, by God there. And again, I think we see this really clearly in Luke 16, that there are two levels. There's, there's the level that Lazarus goes to um, and, and the level that the rich man goes to um, beneath. So get the picture? In the Old Testament, there's somewhere where everybody goes when they die. It's metaphorically under the earth. Everybody goes there, whether good or evil. Um, you go there, you don't come back. You're conscious while you're there. You know that you're there. Um, but there seems to be this idea of two levels um, in Sheol. But most of what the Old Testament has to say about Sheol, if we're being perfectly honest, is pretty negative. Even for God's people, there, there's kind of glimmers of hope, um, like in Psalm 49 and in some of the other Psalms. But, but it seems like a place of gloominess, a place that you wouldn't want to go to, but nonetheless, a place where you go when you die. Let's move uh, into the New Testament. So Jesus talks about um, Sheol. Um, he uses the word Hades because we have the New Testament in Greek. But again, the same as Sheol, Hades is not hell. In fact, in the book of Revelation, death and Hades get thrown into hell. So Hades could not be hell. It's a different place. But you'll see that what Jesus says about Sheol or Hades fits with what we've read in the Old Testament. It's a place where the righteous and the unrighteous both go. It's a place where the souls of those who are there are conscious and can communicate with one another. They don't just kind of go into oblivion. And there are different sections. There's a place of torment and a place of rest at Abraham's side. And sometimes we call that place paradise. And, and many people believe that's what Jesus says to the, the thief on the cross beside him. Today you will be with me in paradise. That higher level is a place of rest, um, but we'll come back to that a bit later. So the only other thing I want to say at this stage about Luke 16 is that it clearly teaches that after we die, we cannot change our position. We cannot change our eternal destination. Abraham says to the rich man, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. 
Now, sometimes people want to suggest that because God's outside of time, then in theory at least it should be possible for you to be saved after you die. But clearly Jesus teaches that that isn't the case. And I think this probably rules out purgatory too, that idea of moving from one level to another. Now, it won't surprise you that things are about to get better because what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection has changed things and has changed them significantly. But we need to understand Jesus' work. We need to understand what the Old Testament says to actually understand what Jesus has done. So let's think about that for a moment. What changed when Jesus died and rose again? And again, this is, this is an area where the older translations maybe don't help us out too much. And I don't mean the King James Bible here. I mean older translations of things like the Apostles' Creed the Apostles' Creed, and, and some of the other um, creeds of the church. And we do actually um, recite it here occasionally in Ravenhill. I've, I've recited it here before communion. Now, many of you, I'm sure, will know the phrase from the creed, he descended into where? Hell. Hell. He descended into hell. But the original text in Greek doesn't say he descended into hell. Now, there are two um, different early versions of the Greek manuscripts that we have. One says that he descended into Hades, and the other says that he descended to the underneath. It literally just says he descended underneath. There is no biblical evidence. This is a brave statement, but I'm going to say it. There is no biblical evidence that Jesus actually descended into hell. Jesus bore the wrath of God on the cross and nowhere else. When he had done that, he said, it is finished, and it was finished. There wasn't a need for him to go down to hell to get a wee bit more of God's punishment. If you think about um, the Old Testament sacrificial system, I know it's something you think about all the time, but if I've sinned and I'm an Old Testament person, I I get this animal and and I take it to the priest and I say, look, I've sinned um, and I need you to do something about this, and the animal is sacrificed. So my sin is, is at least metaphorically put onto that animal. It's foreshadowing what Jesus is going to do, of course, but my sin is put onto this animal, and then I don't have to go to hell. Now, that, that's the end of the story. That, there's no suggestion that the animal goes to hell or anything like that. And it's the same with Jesus. I have sinned. I need saved. He's the sacrifice. He pays the price on the cross, and I avoid hell. Nowhere in that transaction is that Jesus needs to go to hell. So where did Jesus go when he died? Well, as the creed actually says, he descended into Hades. Now, Jesus actually gives us a clue about this in his ministry. He tells us this is going to happen. Some words which might be familiar from Matthew 12, he says, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now you can probably even see from that language on the screen, the heart of the earth. That's very much the Sheol language from the Old Testament, that idea that it's under the earth. But if that's not enough to convince you, I want you to see what Jonah says in Jonah chapter two. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. Now, 
Jonah says that he is in Sheol. Some people think this is a metaphor. Jonah was as good as dead in the belly of the fish. Other scholars believe that Jonah actually died and that he actually was really in Sheol and that's why Jesus can identify with him in that way. I don't want to get into that debate tonight, but either way, Jesus said that just like Jonah, he was going to the heart of the earth. He was going to Sheol or Hades. So he descended, he descended into Hades. In Ephesians 4 and verse 9, Paul talks about Jesus ascending into heaven and he says this, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the depths of the earth? Not to hell, to Hades, to the depths of the earth. But this is where the good news comes. Jesus descends into Hades and he breaks it open. He has authority there. That's why Paul says in Philippians 2 that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Why does Jesus go to Hades? He went to bring his people out. He went to bring them home. Again, in Ephesians 4, Paul says, and he's actually quoting Psalm 68 when he says this, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. He brought the captives out of Hades. Jesus went to that higher level of Hades where Lazarus was at Abraham's side, where the thief on the cross was with him, and he brought all of God's people. From, he brought them from that place to, to, I suppose, a new paradise, a new ascended paradise where he is in heaven. Paul talks about this a bit in 2 Corinthians 12. It's a really difficult passage that we can't get into tonight, but Paul talks about um, someone he knows having had a, visit, a vision and was caught up into the third heaven, which just means the highest heaven, and he was there in God's paradise. So Jesus moves paradise, if you will, from Hades when he breaks out of there and brings God's people with them to paradise in heaven. I think that's why we see at the end of Matthew's gospel when Jesus dies, that dead people rise and break out of their tombs. Why does that happen? It's, it's a really weird part of the Bible that we maybe don't talk about very much, but I think the explanation is really simple. Jesus goes to Hades where they are and he lets them out because he has the authority to do that. And that foreshadows what he is going to do in breaking all of them out and taking them to heaven. So now when believers die, their souls go immediately to be with the exalted Christ. As Paul says, away from the body and at home with the Lord. In Hebrews 12, it says that our souls are made perfect in that process. Our bodies, our physical bodies, they stay on earth, but our souls go to be with the Lord. So did I really just spend 20 minutes, or however long it's been, talking about Sheol and Hades and the intermediate state and all the rest of that, just to say at the end of my talk, if you're a Christian, if you believe in Jesus, then you go to be with him in heaven. Well, yes, yes I did, I did just do that. But I did so because I think it's important. I don't think the church today generally understands this very well. We know that Jesus died on the cross that he paid the price for our sin, and we know that at the end of time, at the judgment, at the resurrection, it means we'll live with him forever, we'll be declared not guilty on that great day of judgment. Because of what he's done, our bodies will be glorified to be like his, and we won't be cast into hell. But that doesn't explain why if we die before that day, we get to go to heaven, before the judgment. How come we get to be in heaven with Jesus to see him face to face before that judgment? Well, the reason is this. 
because when Jesus died, he went to the realm of the dead to Sheol, Hades, and he brought his people out of there. He led captives out of there. And that's why when we die before the end of time, if we die before the end of time, we get to go to heaven. That's how, in Paul's words, we become like him in his death so as to attain one day in the future to the resurrection. I have no sense from you because you know, you're, you're not being very interactive and that's okay, but I have no sense if this is new information. I have no sense if this is old hat to you. But if it is new to you as it was new to me, you may be asking the question, well, can I really believe this? I've been sitting in church for years and I've never heard anything like this. Is that boy up there just making this up? Well, I want to, I want to just read a few things to you um, from some of the, the, the documents that have been handed down just from our forefathers, just so that you know I'm not making this up. I want to read um, one question from uh, the larger catechism, question 50. Bet you never thought you'd be in catechism class here on a Sunday night in Ravenhill. Wherein consisted Christ's humiliation after his death? Whoa, that's fancy language. So Christ's humiliation is basically the idea that Christ is God and he descended to earth. So in a sense, that's humiliating, okay? So, so wherein, where was Christ in his state of humiliation? Where was he after his death? So if, if I was writing the catechism today, I'd say, where was Jesus after he died? And the answer, which we saw a flash of, Christ's humiliation after his death consisted in his being buried, continuing in the state of the dead, and under the power of death till the third day, which hath been otherwise expressed in these words, he descended into hell. That made me laugh during the week because I'm a bit sad, but it's really funny that the, the Westminster divine said, well, otherwise, in other places that has been described as he descended into hell, but that's not actually what we believe. He was dead, he was buried, he was in the place of the dead, the state of the dead, and he was there till the third day. That's what we believe, and that's what, as a church, we have always believed about what happened to Christ after he died. We don't believe that he descended to hell. And one more question from that, 52. How was Christ exalted in his resurrection? Christ was exalted in his resurrection in that not having seen corruption and death, that means he didn't go to hell, okay? He didn't see corruption and death. He did not go to hell, brackets of which it was not possible for him to be held. He couldn't have gone to hell. He was not guilty. He rose again from the dead the third day by his own power. I have to say, um, one of the places where I have been um, confronted by this is in other countries. So, um, as some of you know, I have led teams out to Romania different times, and, and one of the things that we did in our youth camps each day is we had a, a time of tough questions, much like what we're doing on Sunday evenings here in Ravenhill, and we did this question, what happens when I die? And these were guys from the Hungarian Reformed Church, and we thought, oh, we're great. We've been to college, we've got, this, we've got this new information, we're gonna really impress them. And they were like, we know that, we've got this. We know, we call it the changing room, that's actually what they said, we call it the changing room, we call it the place you go to before you go to heaven, you get changed into your robes there, and then you're reunited with your body and, and you're resurrected with Christ at the end. They got this. I have another uh, friend, a Ukrainian girl, who came here and sat in church, not in Ravenhill, um, and said the creed, and she said, I never understood why you said he descended into hell because we don't say that at home. We don't say that. So this is not something, as I say, that, that I'm sort of convoluting up. Um, unfortunately, we have been a bit misled by our translations. 
in this, but Christ did not descend into hell. He descended to Hades, and that's why we get to go to heaven when we die, which has to be amazing. So I want to encourage you tonight as I finish. If you've lost a loved one who trusted in Christ, or if you're in a season of your life maybe where you're worried about death, well, then you can trust that you will be with Christ in heaven. Not through blind faith, not through some sort of airy-fairy statement, oh yeah, when you die, if you, if you believe in Jesus, sure, you go to heaven. Not only has he dealt with your sin, not only has he defeated death, and those things are important, we know those well, but we also trust that he went to the place of the dead and he brought his people from there to heaven. I think for many of us, certainly for me, that has been a missing piece in the puzzle. But I hope and I trust that your faith is bolstered and, and encouraged by maybe just understanding a little bit more about the saving work of Jesus Christ. moment of truth. Oh, I see a message. It might not be anybody here. Okay. Okay. It's a good easy question, not. Um, but I'll start with it um, and get it out of the way, perhaps. I'm not sure of the reference, but I think there is a Bible passage that speaks of Jesus preaching to souls in Hades. Is that right? If so, what would be the point of this once in Sheol, your end destination is already determined? So, yes, um, there is a passage which says that Jesus um, preaches to souls in Sheol, and I'm, forgive me, I'm looking it up. Um, So it, it says that he preached to spirits in prison. So it's, sorry, it's First Peter. You'll crucify me for that, I'm sure. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. So what is that about? Um, and what does it mean? I'm gonna look up the whole passage because that's just one verse. 1 Peter 3. Yeah, it, it, it's a passage that I did look at during the week as I was... Um, thinking about this. Um, all I would say is that there's no, it, what it doesn't say is that um, Jesus preached and those spirits or those souls repented and then were saved. Um, so Jesus was sent, um, as he has said himself, um, to, to, to preach good news to the poor um, and to set the oppressed free. Um, so look, it, it, it's, it's a mystery. I can't say exactly what he preached because the Bible doesn't tell us. I can't say what the result of that was because the Bible um, doesn't tell us. Um, but what, what I would say um, is that the fact that he went and preached good news doesn't necessarily mean that anybody did change their eternal destination as a result of that because I, I think that can happen. Um, but um, the fact that he went and preached good news um, that's not really an unusual thing. If you think even about his earthly ministry when he came to earth, he preached to everyone, people who were gonna to listen to him, people who weren't. So I'm sorry if that's not a very satisfactory answer, but it's probably the best I can, I can offer up. Um, that yes he, yes, he did go and yes, he did preach, but I don't think we can say, oh, anybody changed their eternal destination because of that. I don't know who sent that because I don't have the number saved. Um, 
but if, there any if there's any follow-up to whoever sent it, please feel free to message me again or shout out. Um, are there any other questions in the meantime? Yeah, sure. Brilliant. Yes. Yep, sure. So in case anybody didn't hear, um, if Jesus died and descended to Hades and he brought God's people out, um, basically what about everybody else? What about people in the lower regions of Hades? What happened to them? And did they go straight to hell or whatever? Um, no. Um, so those people are still there. I think that's, that's the idea. Um, they are waiting for that final judgment when they will go to hell. So um, Marty's going to talk about hell in a couple of weeks, so if I make a pig's ear of this, Marty, he'll clear this up. But my understanding is that um, no, w w everybody goes to an intermediate state of some kind, so we go to be in paradise with the Lord. They go to that lower region of Hades, that place of torment. Um, and then at the end, everybody is resurrected, everybody is reunited with their earthly body, some for glory, some for judgment. So that's, that's my understanding. Um, so yeah, that, so there is an intermediate state, I suppose you would say, for the unsaved as well, and, and that's it. Um, yeah. Is there any other? It won't be. Just because of the sheer number of people? No, that, that's a very good question. So how, how could God judge absolutely everybody if there have been billions upon billions of people? How could he judge them all? <laughs> if you could find a, a justification for that in scripture, that, that'd be great. <laughs> um, I, I suppose, you know, from our point of view, that would be impossible. You know, if, if I was given that job to judge all those billions and billions of people, it wouldn't happen. You know, it, it wouldn't be possible. Um, but God is so much bigger and powerful and greater than we could ever imagine that we trust he's able to do that. How he does it, I don't think we could explain because we can't explain God. We can't explain his power. We can't explain how immense he is. Um, it's, it's maybe not a very satisfactory answer, but the answer is pretty much just because he's God. Um, he's God and he can. Um, but I don't think we will ever, you know, we, we could have that question forever. We'd never be able to understand how, how he does it. Um, I suppose you could say, how did God create the universe when you look at the size of the universe? Um, just because he's God and he, and he is able and, and we couldn't understand that ever. Yes.
I'm not sure on which part you want me to give a take. Um, I, I suppose in, in the earlier part of what you said, you talked about sort of the Spirit of God departing from people. I mean, I, I would want to say, um, I, I believe the New Testament teaches very clearly that once we are saved, if we are truly saved, then we are saved, um, full stop, that God's um, saving grace is always effective. Um, because if we don't believe that, then we kind of don't believe that God is perfect, to put it very simply. Um, so I, th I think, you know, if you look in like the book of First John or somewhere like that, it, it talks about, it actually talks about them as antichrist, which is really strong language. But those who were within us, those who were in church, who have gone out and, and have believed something else, but, but they were never one of us, essentially is what John says. So um, I, I, I do subscribe to the, the idiom, once saved, always um, saved. I'm not sure about the person you know who you know went through death and it, it was a very difficult experience and nobody was with them. I, I'm not sure what I can say to that other than it sounds very sad. But and I don't, I don't say that trivially. I mean that. But um, it, it obviously, you know, d death is something which um, can be very frightening. The actual process of dying to some people can be very frightening, and I think it's only with the hope that we have in, in Jesus that, that we face that with confidence. And, and what you've said maybe illustrates um, the sadness of those who, who don't have that, if I've, if I've picked you up right. I'd like to find out to that person. Yep. Yep. Definitely. Yes. Yes, and, and I think the other important thing to say there is that you know we, we are not God, so we are not the judge and, and jury, and, and ultimately um, we don't know whether somebody else in their heart is, is saved or not. Um, so it's not our place to say, oh, well, they walked away or they didn't when they died because, because we don't know that. That's God's place. I have a few more questions on the phone. Um, a really fun one. Um, King Saul summons Samuel via a medium. Um, we, we read of that story in the Old Testament where King Saul summons Samuel after Samuel has died. Was it actually Samuel he spoke to? Um, the short answer is yes, I believe it was. Um, and it, that, that's, again, another really weird passage of Scripture. And I said when I was um, chatting through what I was saying about Sheol tonight that Sheol isn't normally a place you go to and don't come back from. But that's one of the, that seems to be one of the exceptions where Samuel's soul actually was um, summoned and and then, then was sent back. Um, and I think the explanation for that is actually that, that bit in Psalm 139 when it says, you know, if I go, if I make my home in the heavens, you're there. If I lie in Sheol, you're there. God, God is sovereign over even Sheol. Um, so he is the one who enables that to happen. But yeah, yes is the short answer to your question. Um, I, I do think that it, was, um, that it was Samuel that was spoken to there. But I can't explain why. Um, not really a question, but it's hard to fathom how someone can repent on their deathbed after a life of wrongs can be brought to glory in the same way as those who lived a holy life. Um, yeah, yeah, fair enough. And, and I think, again, that's the thing I would say about that is that, w that we are not the judge. Um, so God will know whether that person in their heart has truly repented. And if they have, 
yes, they will be in glory, and, and that will be difficult for us to take. It'll, it'll be like the, the prodigal, you know, the prodigal son who comes back, and, and the older brother says, look, I've served you all my life, and you're letting him in. Um, you know, we, we need to, you know, it's difficult, but we need to realize that, yeah, God can do that. God can save the prodigal, even right up to the last moment. But God also knows whether that person has really repented in their heart, or whether they've said to themselves, I'm going to be really clever, and I'm, I'm going to live my life the way I want. And then at the last minute, I'll, I'll say the right words, I'll say the formula, um, but, but they don't believe it in their heart. And so they're not saved. But again, it, it's, not, it's not our place to be judge and jury in that. But, but thank you for that comment. Um, is, is there anything else just before we close? Oh, yeah, go ahead. Yes, so that, that's, that's very difficult. So the question, maybe if you're at the back, you didn't hear, but um, what about people who, who never get to hear about the name of Jesus in their life? You know, maybe young children in Africa who die um, or, or just people of other religions um, who die, um, never hearing the name of Jesus, never maybe having that opportunity um, to be saved. That should have been one of the hard questions. Maybe we, we, should, uh, we should have done a, a night on it. A lot of things I could say. Um, one is that, um, if those people are judged, God is just in that judgment because we are all sinful. We are all guilty of death. And it, it's hard for us to imagine maybe how a young child could be. Um, but, but that's what the Bible teaches. And I mean, I, I have young children and I know that from a, you know, a very early age, it's obvious um, that, that they do things and they say things that you think, who taught you to do that? You, you haven't seen that from basically any of the people that you have seen in your life and yet you knew to do that and that was wrong. Um, so we are um, inherently sinful, um, but it, that it is, you're right, it's very difficult, particularly when you think of young children. Um, I think with people of other religions, um, it, it's maybe a, a bit easier to explain, not necessarily easier to accept, but at least easier to explain. Um, w when you look at the likes of Romans 1 and Romans 2, where it says, and, and even places in the Psalms, Psalm 19, where it says that it's evident to everybody that, that God exists, that even nature around us, the power of God should point us to God. Um, and, and so, you know, Paul even says in, in Romans 2 that, that it would be hypothetically possible. It doesn't say that it actually happens, but at least it would be hypothetically possible for people to see that and to live a godly life before God and be saved. Um, so the, the phrase that Paul uses is that we're without excuse, that God in, in the world around us points us to him. Now, again, that's easy to say and dress up in theological language and, 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 and say that. Whereas you think, well, no, if somebody grew up and was indoctrinated in a different way, and, and how, would they, how would they ever know? Um, th that's not something I think I can give an easy answer to. Um, but I, I think those are the two key things, that, that God is just, that we are all guilty of sin. So if those people are judged, well, uh, it, it's not a nice thing. From, from our point of view, we think that, how could, how could a loving God do that? But he does it because he's just. Uh, and then the other side of things is that, that the Bible says that the that creation points us to him. It also says that he's put um, a, a desire for God, a knowledge of God in the hearts of, of all people. Um, so it, it, that would again suggest that there isn't an excuse for those people. 
But I, I see that in, in two lights. I see it in the, in the way that you phrased it as, um, you know, how, how can this be? But it's also a great challenge for the church. We need to get out there. We need to, we need to make sure that everybody um, hears about the name of Jesus. We need to make sure that Bibles are translated into every language. You know, all, all of these things are, are super important. Is that okay? There, there was an inkling of a question over there. Yeah, I mean, th that is ultimately very difficult. I mean, what, what do you say about the rich man and Lazarus? Thank you for your feedback on that. And I mean, it, um, it would be hard to imagine. The thing that always confused me about it is it would be hard to imagine Abraham being in hell. Um, so, you know, I, I, so thank you. I hope that, that was helpful. With, with the children who die or whatever, I mean, there, there are a lot of views out there on it. Um, like I quoted the Westminster um, Catechism earlier, that what the Confession of Faith says is that um, in the same way that God foreordains those who he will save of those of us who are alive, what it says about children is that those who he has foreordained to life go to life and those who he hasn't do not. Um, but I, I'm not sure um, biblically how how solid that is. Um, certainly your suggestion that if they haven't even been born, then how could they have sinned? Um, so know that that's definitely a position that is, that is widely held. I, I'm not gonna jump in with two feet into that debate tonight. Um, but, but thank you, that's, that's fair enough. Um, it, it, it may do. Um, I suppose the little children who were there weren't sort of tiny babies necessarily. Um, but yes, he, he wants them to, to be let um, to come on onto him. Um, I suppose I have always understood that. Uh, I'm wary of time, I need to wrap up. But I've always understood that through the lens of um, what he also said is that whoever does not make himself or herself like one of these little children will never enter the kingdom of God. And I've un understood that as a picture of the, the kind of childlike faith that we have, rather than maybe necessarily relating to the children being saved. But I, I could see how you could say that, certainly. Are we, are we questioned out? 
I was going to say whose idea was it to do a Q&A, but it was mine, so I can't, uh, I can't say anything about that. Um, I hope that's been okay. Um, my number is there. Um, it's also available on the church website. If you haven't been brave enough to ask something or something pops into your mind over the next day or two, or you just want to chat at some stage, um, please do feel very welcome um, to get in touch. I want to just finish um, by reading some words, would you believe, from the Westminster Confession. The bodies of men, of people, after death, return to dust and see corruption, but their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness, are received into the highest heavens, where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the last day for the full redemption of their bodies. That is the, that is the confidence that we have, and I wanted just to, to finish with that, with that tonight. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that precious in your sight is the death of those who love you. Father, thank you for the great confidence we have in facing death, that even that will not separate us from the love of Christ our Lord. Thank you for what he has done. Thank you that he came in flesh to this earth. And thank you that he died. And he went to the place of the dead so that we would not be captives there but so that we would have the confidence of living with him forever. So Lord, help us to live for him and to serve him. And now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip us with everything good for doing his will and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.